Welcome to a very special Twilight Zone podcast. It's it's not the episode that everyone's been expecting, but every now and again an opportunity gets presented to you that you just can't ignore, and this is one of those opportunities. We haven't really touched upon the 80s series of the Twilight Zone in the podcast yet. That's that's something for the future when we're finished with the original series, but like I say, I got an opportunity recently to speak to one of the men involved, heavily involved in the 80s series, and it was just too good an opportunity to pass up. So what better way of introducing the 80s Twilight Zone to the podcast than this? Paul Chitlick was the story editor on the Twilight Zone, along with his writing partner, Jeremy Bertram Finch. Now, they did contribute an episode to the second series of the 80s Twilight Zone called Aqua Vita, but then they went on to write several more and to actually story edit the show into the third season. Now, several of those scripts that Paul and Jeremy wrote are now being released on ebook by a company called Digital Fabulists, and you can go and check them out at digitalfabulous.com. And to celebrate that, I got the chance to have a chat with Paul, and I'm going to play that for you right now. A word of warning, we do spoil probably three episodes, and those episodes are Aquavita, The Trunk, and Room 2426. So if you haven't seen those episodes, maybe you want to catch those first before listening to to the interview. But anyway, without further ado, here's Paul Chitlick. Paul, I guess a, a good place to start would be could you could you maybe tell us about your before you ever came to work on on the eighties show? You know what was your introduction to the Twilight Zone? Uh, well, my connection with that was as a viewer, and uh-huh. it's pretty religious viewing for me at the time. And uh, also, I had a great experience with one of those shows. I watched it with my brother, uh, my younger brother, as a matter of fact, and mm-hmm. we were watching a show called To Serve Man. Yeah, which I think I mentioned that before, but this was a show in which uh, an alien comes from another world and he brings a book that uh, the United Nations interpreter finally uh, discovers, uh, breaks the code of the title, at least, and the title is to serve man. So everybody thinks, wow, they're great. They've come here to help us. And the aliens begin a process of uh, making promises to people, taking them back to their world mm-hmm. and telling them that everything is going to be great over there. And then near the end of the show, uh, the interpreter uh, runs to the United Nations with the results of his further investigations and finds out that it's a cookbook. Of course, and, yeah. And then, and then we cut to where the the guys are on, a, on the alien ship and they're just being fed enough scraps to keep them alive so that they could be served as food on the alien planet. Mm-hmm. Well, this scared the crap out of my brother. <laughs> <laughs> Who was at the time? I don't know, seven or eight. And uh, it scared me pretty well, too, but not nearly as much as it. <laughs> thinking that people could be food for aliens. <laughs> so uh, I was always fascinated with the Twilight Zone. The idea is that it, it, it took simple ideas and spun them out into... Um, something that would be scary, delightful, thoughtful. I remember another one about plastic surgery where uh, everybody, we never saw the face of the person, mm. uh, the central character, but everybody else in the world was ugly. And so you assume that uh, things were going to change for her. And she went in for plastic surgery. And the reason that she did was because she was beautiful and they wanted to make her 
like she wanted to be like everybody else. Yeah, it was it was a very interesting idea that uh, explored the reasons for what we do on Earth, and what we do in our daily lives, but we spun it out into something a little bit more thought provoking. Once when I saw that the they were starting it up again, I thought I've got to try that. I've got to get in there. And I was just at that time getting into television. Uh, I had been a writer and a, a college administrator and a teacher up to that point, but I'd never written for television. And I had started working on a show called Guilty or Innocent, and I'd written for that for a while. And then uh, the opportunity came to pitch to Twilight Zone, which actually was an opportunity I created mm. by going onto the lot where they CBS was uh, developing Twilight Zone. Yeah, the Studio City uh, Radford lot, and uh, we just wandered around a lot, uh, looking for the Twilight Zone offices, and we found it. At that time, it was a lot easier to get on the lot. We lied our way on, of course, but <laughs> at that time, it was a lot easier to get on the lot. And we went to the Twilight Zone office, and Harlan Ellison was sitting in the reception area. Yeah, and we started talking to him, and uh, you know, he's an incredible science fiction writer. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was very casual, and he said, uh, hey, are you guys coming to the Writers Guild picnic on Saturday? We're going to be talking about how to pitch to the show. And we, who were not members of the Writers Guild at the time, yeah. said, uh, yeah, of course, sure. What time are you going to be there? And he told us. So uh, we went home and called up the Writers Guild and said, uh, oh, we we lost the notice for the picnic on Saturday. Where is it going to be? And they told us. And so we went to the picnic. With dates, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we met with Harlan and Rocco Bannon and uh, George Martin and several other people there who have now, of course, uh, gone on to produce really big shows. Yeah. And uh, we got the word, and then uh, they invited us in to pitch, and we went to pitch, and that's how we sold our first episode. Which was Aquavita, right? Which was Aquavita, yeah. yeah. We sold them another one after that, but they never made it. Um, uh uh-huh. I don't remember the name of it right now, but obviously they never made it, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. And then when the show went off the air for a while, and then there was a notice in the LA Times of all places. I mean, you'd think everybody would know what was happening, but it was published in the LA Times that they were going to be starting up again, and Mark Schomerdine was going to be the executive producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark was a guy that had worked on um, My Claudius. I don't know if you know him, but it was... Uh, of course, yeah. Yeah, great show. Very, very interesting. Fascinating show, as a matter of fact. So, like the uh, the, the brash young men that we were, we called him up. I just called up Mark. I, I don't know how I found him, but I called him up and I said, uh, hey, uh, we'd like to pitch to, be, uh, to work on your show. And he said, oh, you know, yours was one of the ep- few episodes that I really liked of the yeah. CBS for Twilight Zone. So, why don't you come in? So, we talked to him. And uh, he hired us as story editors, and, uh, us meeting me and Jeremy Bertrand Finch, who was my yeah. writing partner. So that's how we got on. And then uh, the other story editor was uh, J. Michael Straczynski, mm-hmm. Joe Straczynski, and um, we all worked together to decide what stories were going to go on that particular uh, version of Twilight Zone. We had 30 stories to work with, and yeah. we decided to use a lot of freelance writers or as many as we could and uh, Mark was the executive producer he sat in on story meetings not story meetings he sat in on pitches and he would have the final word but really it was 
Joe and Jeremy and I that decided what was going to go on the show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was nobody between us and Mark. We would have been had the title of producer had we not been shooting in Canada, and there were um, requirements to have a certain number of people uh, on the crew, cast and crew that were Canadian and producers was an off limits title for Americans. So. I see, I see. That's what we did. It was cool. Well, if we could go back to that first episode, Akavita, I think, um, I think it is very. It is one of those episodes that I watched, and I it did harken back a lot to the original series because, you know, it had at its centre a very kind of human fear that we all face the the fear of getting old, and then it had an ele- an element of the unexplained getting introduced to that, which is a very Twilight Zone way of telling a story. I mean, how much was the original show in your mind when you you and Jeremy were sitting down to write that one? That one came in. We, we pitched that episode. Mm. So um, that one came about because we were I was walking down the boardwalk in uh, Venice and I saw some young women in bikinis, which is always interesting. And I saw an old <laughs> woman in bikini. And I thought, uh-huh. well, that's interesting. Um, and we started to talk about this. And this is usually the way Jeremy and I came up with ideas. One of us had seen something, heard something, thought something, dreamt something. And we'd start talking about it. And I said, well, what if... Uh, I, I mean, this the guy that's walking here really enjoyed the company of this older woman, this older bikini woman, but uh, mm. he knew that, you know, there would never think, be anything between them, but why not? And then I thought, well, what if she were a younger person in that body? And what if there was something that she could take that, make her, that would make her younger? So the, the idea came that uh, you could drink something, there would be fountain of youth and bottled water. Mm. And then we got it transposed and we talked to uh, the guys at Twilight Zone, we pitched it like that. And then we, in the room, we decided that might be better if it was an aging model, if the person that was going to be become younger had a reason for that rather than the person that was talking to them. Yeah. Uh, so we decided that it might be a model. And then through our discussions, we decided really maybe it's better if she was a anchor person for um, the news. And... We follow the precepts of the Twilight Zone there, which is put an ordinary person in an extraordinary situation mm-hmm. and see how they act. We also had in mind as we were writing this that it was a metaphor for drug use, especially cocaine, yeah. which makes you feel younger, I've heard, and that, um, but actually ages you if you become an addict. Now, this is certainly the case with methamphetamine and you Mm -hmm. feel younger but you age much faster so that is why we got the idea that if she stopped taking the drug she would age right more than what she was uh, her true age her true chronological age and then we started to think about well what would make this really interesting not just this one person but her relationship with her at that time boyfriend could have been her husband could have been anything but uh, was her boyfriend, how would that affect their relationship? Mm-hmm. Again, the interior person is the same, it's just the exterior that's different, and we wanted to understand how that would work. And that's when we came up with the twist, which was the twist of the love story, which I have to admit, got a little bit screwed up in the shooting of it, in the editing of it. Uh, we had specifically said, do not show these people sitting there and talking, so that mm. we, it's a, more of a reveal and a surprise when we cut to them and we see it's the they're both old. Right. Uh, show the young couple in the distance, shoot over the shoulder if, if you have to here, but don't show the 
the older people in VO, I mean, who are talking, we wanted it just to be VO and then to come back yeah. and show them in person. So uh -huh. anyway, that's the, the genesis of that idea and how it turned out. It's, it's interesting how an idea changes as you continually talk about it, especially yeah. a Twilight Zone idea. Uh, they continually changed as we tried to go deeper and deeper into the characters and their motivations and their relationships. That was your first episode, and then, like you said, you you and Jeremy went on to be story editors. Now, having seen those first two seasons, what were your thoughts on what had been done so far, and you know how did that shape what you guys wanted to do with the series going forward? Well, we were in agreement with Mark. Um, Mark Shelmerdine and actually Joe came on board on this idea too was that we wanted to go back to the original Twilight Zone concepts. Mm -hmm. uh, Phil DeGuerre had kind of wandered off and done some different kinds of things and the focus wasn't really there. Again, we wanted to do ordinary people in extraordinary situations. Yeah. And he had done all kinds of crazy stuff, including there was one thing where everybody was. Uh, uh, there was kind of an organization that took care of each moment in time hmm. and had to redress a room uh, every so many seconds to make it look like the, you know, time was passing. And it, it was a concept I don't even understand today, but it was yeah. so uh, complex that they actually got out a blackboard and explained it during the, during the episode <laughs> and writing formulas and things like that. So we didn't want to do anything like that because that was too confusing. It was not readily understandable to a wide audience. And, yeah. um, we wanted to focus on people, their relationships, and how the extraordinary situation affected those people and those relationships, which is you know, what really good drama should be doing. Absolutely. And so we all decided we would go back to the Rod Serling era for inspiration in terms of style. Mm -hmm. and, and content, and then uh, updated in terms of what's possible now. And then, of course, if there's anything that went into the future, we could do that as well. So we had a wide range of, of ideas, but our mandate was the same. Extraordinary, uh, ordinary people in extraordinary situations, and how do they react? So we focused on. Good. Well, I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen all of season three, I'll be honest. Um, but I have seen the episodes that you and Jeremy jeremy wrote and I, I think there is a consistency there that was lacking in the first two seasons Thank if you. i'm honest which uh, yeah, yeah. which is absolutely a good thing going into season three what was the kind of future of the show at that point because i, I have heard and do correct me if i'm wrong that it was just to make up the numbers to sell the season the series for syndication or was there a, a real feeling that this would be going ahead for longer no, unfortunately, you're correct in what you've heard. Uh, the mandate was CBS had something like 63 or 67, I don't remember exactly, um, half hours that they could cut. Um, some of the their, the two first two seasons that they had were some of the episodes were longer than 30 minutes. Some were much shorter. They had all kinds of different lengths, and they, had, they figured that they had uh, enough to have two-thirds of the syndication package. And they wanted us to fill out the package with another 30. Yeah. So their plan was to broadcast the 30 in syndication alone as first run mm. during the first year. And then subsequently, they would sell the whole package of about 100, uh, more or less 100, I guess it was, as a syndication package for, from then on. And it went, it played on syndication uh, 
I believe, 15 to 17 times. I'm not sure how many exactly. But mm-hmm. I remember getting residuals from like you know, the 15, the 15th round, the 16th round. Now it's running again. Uh, and then it ran on cable for a while when it ran on uh, USA, I believe. Now it's running on uh, the U.S. Uh, cable uh, it's, uh, outlet called Chiller. Yeah. And it's running currently on that. Uh-huh. So um, they wanted to make it an, an, an evergreen show. Twilight Zone is an evergreen show. It doesn't date. Yeah. Um, and they wanted to run it as much as possible, which they're doing. They are really uh, milking that property. And they're doing a good job of that. Um, yeah. Not that I make, you know, when they're running on Chiller, I make about $2.50 an episode. <laughs> Maybe less. Yeah, yeah, it's been running on the Horror Channel in the UK, but uh-huh. for, for some reason they they haven't put season three on, which has frustrated a few people. But uh, hopefully mm, they will, uh, well, they'll get that together. Yeah, I'm sure they will. I mean, they have a, uh, It's just as cheap for them to run season three as it is one and two. So I don't know what their mm-hmm. their issue is. But you know, maybe they can't run it until they run it on Chiller first, and then they can run it on Horror. Yeah, the, yeah. these things are so arcane. Their contracts are so difficult to work out. So. Yeah, but that you're right. So it was it was made specifically to run in the syndication market. The fun thing was that uh, it was greeted with great relief that we were going back to the style of of the original rather than using the CBS style as a as a metric. Good. Well, I I'm rather fond of the trunk. I I, <laughs> I like that episode a lot. I I think it's a wonderful story, but. Um, you know, after reading the synopsis, I, I kind of expected it to be a be careful what you wish for kind of tale where the protagonist kind of gets too greedy and something mm-hmm. happens for him. But you guys took it in a total, uh, really different direction, which, you know, I really like. Could you tell us a bit about that episode? Well, that's interesting uh, that you say that because we always try to take things in a different direction. We didn't always succeed, but we always tried. Mm-hmm. And this was an episode that Jeremy came up with. Uh, he came in one day and said, you know, uh, what if a guy can get anything he wishes, but he's not a, um, a champagne and uh, caviar kind of guy. Mm-hmm. He's just an ordinary character and he, his wishes are simple. And I said, hey, that's a good idea. And from there, we started talking, well, where does he work? Where did he find the trunk? How does it happen? And we had logical uh, reasons for him to find the trunk. As you remember, he works in a very, very cheap hotel. He finds a trunk in the room one day, which is a common thing. You know, you find an old suitcase in a hotel room. And uh, he opens it up, and, you know, I wish I had a nickel for the trunk I found. And suddenly there's a trunk full of nickels. So he realizes that he can get whatever he wants. But what he wants are simple things. And this Mm -hmm. is what... Um, the kind of gangsters that uh, inhabit the hotel don't really understand. You know, why don't you wish for a BMW or something like that? Yeah. And, you know, he doesn't really want that. He just has simple things that he needs to take care of his life. He's happy with his life, uh, more or less. But there is something missing from his life, and that is uh, a woman that cares for him. Mm-hmm. But there's a woman that, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a woman that, um, uh, tries to get with him because she knows that he's got this drunk. Yeah. Uh, and in the end, uh, it's kind of a, a twist on that because he just wants to get away. But when he uh, opens up, when the trunk opens up again, it's a woman who's wished for him. So in a strange way, he's gotten his own wish. 
I really like it because, you know, he he treats the trunk with such respect, doesn't he? He thanks it every time it gives him yeah. something. And in the end, it saves his life, really. Yeah, it does. It saves uh-huh. his life in more than one way. Yeah. So it saves his life from those gangsters, and it saves his life in the way that I was just saying, in that he finds his life partner. Mm-hmm. They're both happy. She got what she wished for. He got what he wished for. It was the best of all possible outcomes. Yeah. Now, Joe wasn't as happy with this episode because it was too happy for him. Uh, you know, <laughs> he didn't like that kind of ending. He thought it was too trite. But the, the, the difference in that ending was that they both got what they wished for and they, would, they had very limited tastes and, and wishes. And that was the thing that he couldn't quite comprehend. Interesting mm-hmm. that you know he had a completely different view of that. But we had the power, and he had his power, uh, to do what we wanted to do. Mm. When he wrote an episode, Mark would look at it and say, okay, make this change and that change. It was very, very few changes to either of us, and, and we had the same thing. We would, Nobody had dominion over anybody else. It was just Mark would decide. First, he would decide, yes, we're going to do that. And then after that, it would be like, mm, you know, can his coat be green instead of yellow? And that was about it. So yeah. uh, we had... First and last time, I had complete freedom of uh, creativity on television, which is, as you know, is pretty rare mm. unless you're the showrunner. Uh, and even then, you have to deal with the network. And we had to deal with the network. Believe me, we still had to deal with the network. But they, they, the network being MGM at the time, MGM was the producing network, and then they would, uh, the CBS would distribute it internationally, and MGM would distribute it uh, domestically. So we had we had notes from the network, and sometimes they were so ridiculous as to be just crazy. But sometimes uh, we had to answer them, and uh, we would, and then they would say, "Oh, okay, <laughs> that's the way we went." So <laughs> it was it was pretty good. That's, yeah. Well, that brings me quite nicely onto my next question because uh, Room Two Four Two Six, I think, probably my favorite of your episodes. Oh, um, thanks. That was my favorite too. Yeah, it's it's a very challenging piece, and mm. you know performed really well, and you know the audience does have to, <clears throat> excuse me, the audience does have to sit up and take notice, which is to the story's credit. Did you get many notes on that one? How did how did they accept that one? They, you know, uh, they, I'm not sure they understood what was going on there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they thought that he had the true power of. Uh, of the ability to move himself from one place to the other. Yeah. The only issues that we had were like, why was this guy in jail? And we said, well, he's in jail for thinking, for having different thoughts, mm. for, for, for being revolutionary in his thinking. And there are a group of people that are like that, and he's living in a dictatorship. Yeah. It, it came out of a, a situation, uh, an experience that I had had in Spain, and I lived in Spain under Franco for two years. And so I knew, I was the only person in the room that knew what it was like to live under a dictatorship and to understand what it was to have your thoughts and your your media controlled or attempted to be controlled. I mean, I would go down to the newsstand. I used to like to read the Herald American. I would go down to the newsstand and wouldn't be there that day. And I'd say, well, what happened? And the guy would look at me and go, so you know what happened. Mm. And that would mean that... Uh, it had been confiscated because it had something about Spain. 
or I would go down and buy Time Magazine, there would be a page missing, and I'd say, what happened? And he'd look at me, and you know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> and I also lived there during a time when uh, gathered, there was martial law, and gatherings of more than three people needed a permit. So wow. by three people, I mean if you went to a party and you weren't related to the people that were at the party, you had to have a permit. Yeah. So that kind of oppression and oppression of thought got me thinking, well, what if you could just fool them? And I, and I knew that there were interrogators that tried to fool people mm. into thinking they were their friends. And that's why I threw this interrogator, Joseph, uh, into the cell with our hero. And our hero was smart enough to figure out that he was being fooled eventually, and not right away, but eventually he figured out that he was being fooled. Yeah. And I just wanted to prove that the power of mind could defeat a dictatorship. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And eventually, a meaning, an idea could defeat, could bring down a whole country, which it can. We know it. We know that it's happened. Yeah. And I just wanted to show that in a more metaphorical way. Yeah, yeah, great episode. So, were there any were there any stories that you didn't get round to telling that you would have loved to have made? Oh gosh, yeah, there were tons of stories that we we pitched uh, several stories. One that comes to mind is one that we sold to the uh, CBS guys, hmm. and they ended up not doing it. And it's about a waitress who's struggling to make it, and uh, she sits. She's serving a guy who looks a lot like Orson Welles, who was alive at the time still. Yeah. And he says, you can make it if you want to make it. You know, if you really want to make it, you put yourself out there. And instead of being stuck here as a waitress and doing all your work. And she didn't believe him. She went into the kitchen and uh, to get his meal. When she came out, she was on stage. So, <laughs> and she couldn't believe that either. She went back into the kitchen, and the kitchen was the kitchen. And then she went back out, and there was the guy sitting there. And he said, I told you, if you really believe, you can do it. Yeah. And we went through that a little bit, and eventually they were they were going to do it, but it was a short, you know, and uh, it was one of those like fifteen minute ones, and they decided that was going to be for their next season. And of course, they didn't have a next season, and it was too short for us to do. And we decided that we weren't going to do that. There was another one about um, a man who uh, is exploring a pyramid and uh, gets down into the bowels of the pyramid and sees. English writing on the wall, and he says, "How did that happen? Because this has been sealed for the last three thousand years." And uh, it goes into that situation where he finds there's another uh, cavity that he can squeeze into. The English writing says, "Go back," <laughs> uh -huh. and uh, he finds out that uh, when he gets into the next room, he is transported into Egypt of thirty-five hundred years ago. Right, and. In the end, I'm, I'm going to tell you the story because it never got made. In the end, he was the one that wrote "Go Back" <laughs> because right. uh, he got stuck there and he was sacrificed with the pharaoh because he was one of the people that was in the tomb. You know that the the servants and many other people were laid with the pharaoh to be sacrificed so that they would be there uh -huh. when he woke up in the in the next world. And so he turned out to be one of the pharaoh's slaves. That was the kind of stuff we just thought. What would happen if, and that was our biggest, uh, that was the key to our episodes, what would happen if this, and what would happen if that? And we'd start with that, and then we'd figure out what would happen to this particular person. What kind of person would that happen to, and what would he do? Yeah. It's all about the, the idea and then the people. It's all about the people. 
Well, now you've uh, now you're you're contributing to these ebooks um, from yeah. Digital Fabulists, which yeah. we've we've checked out and they're great. So, uh, how's it been revisiting these stories? You know, how do you think they hold up? Well, that's interesting. Um, I think they do hold up. Uh-huh. You know, we we tried to write them as timeless stories and people in in situations that would recur in any time period. So that it wasn't just things uh, that are going on in society now. There are issues that people deal with and have been dealing with for hundreds and thousands of years. And I think they're holding up pretty well. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be using them. I'm now teaching at Loyola Marymount University in in their film school. Uh And I'm going to be teaching them in a class on introduction to screenwriting for non-majors. So they're not going to be writing full-length features, they're just going to be writing 10 to 15 minute shorts, and I'm going to be using these as examples of how you can tell a complete story in 22 minutes and 30 seconds, which is what we did, and that's including titles, so it's really 20 minutes, and it's just close enough to be used as an example, how there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, so uh, I'm very happy with these stories, I think it's great that they're getting out there again, and that there are people willing to read them, and and they're so easy to take down off the net. I mean, you know, for a couple of bucks, you've got a Twilight Zone script. We One of the reasons that uh, we decided to do that is that in the 80s, our, or was it the early 90s, the scripts were published by Harvest Moon. Uh-huh. And we had a short-term contract with them. They went out of business. And so the scripts that they published were being traded on eBay, and some of them got up to, uh, first they were $50, and then they were $100, and then they were, one of them got up to $1,000, and I said, hey, I'm not making any money on that. (laughs) Why should they make $1,000 to turn over one piece of my work that I truly own? So we decided to go with uh, Digital Fabulous, and they came to us with that idea. We said, that's fantastic, let's do that. Great, great. So I I take it we're going to be seeing uh, a lot more well, I'm hoping, you know, I've talked to some of the other writers I know from Twilight Zone, they're putting their things up there. Robert Walden, who wrote an episode, uh, Robert Walden's an actor who was the star of one of the shows that I worked on called Brothers, which was just before Twilight Zone, uh, before I was on staff on Twilight Zone, it wasn't before I wrote the episode uh, Aquavita. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, Ralph Phillips and a couple of other people are, are going up there. So we're hoping to get most of them. I don't know if Joe will do this or not, but yeah. the likelihood is not. So we'll see what we can. Going back a little, I mean, you were creating a show that many would argue was so strongly linked to Rod Sailing that, you know, to continue it would be Twilight Zone in name only. What would your response to that be, do you think? Well, my response, first of all, is that Rod had an open policy when he was working on the show. He wasn't the only writer. He wrote a lot of the episodes, there's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, he also hired several other writers. Yeah. Uh, and in doing that, he allowed them the freedom to create what they wanted to create along the, as long as it was a Twilight Zone episode, meaning as long as it had an ordinary person in an extraordinary situation mm-hmm. with a twist. And so we thought, well, that mandate is large enough for us to fit under the umbrella of, to mix as many metaphors as I can. Mm-hmm. And we thought there's no reason why uh, we couldn't do this. And his uh, widow said, that's fine with us, and why not? Yeah. And we used, um, as a matter of fact, we also used some 
scripts that had been originally written for the CBS version. Uh, mm -hmm. We used one or two of those, which we thought were really good, and, and we were sorry that they didn't make it onto that CBS version because it would have helped stay yeah. on the air, we thought. And one of the reasons that it went off the air was because it started doing that thing where they were explaining on a blackboard what was going on. Mm. And, you know, you lose your audience when you get away from people and you're onto chalk and board. It's not a good idea. So we didn't feel any compunction about doing these. We just felt um, honored, but we also felt a responsibility yeah. to be as close in style and nature as we possibly could to those originals. We were in color. That was a big difference. But, <laughs> uh, and we had to shoot in Canada, and that was another difference. And, and we can go into that sometime if you want. But uh, we felt, we were hoping that then MGM would say, hey, why don't you do another 30? Mm. But they had their plan, and that was the plan, and they weren't going to change it. And they were very successful with it. I don't know why they didn't change it. And eventually, then it got on to, uh, they did another series of them for UPN, which unfortunately was really not what it should have been. Let's just say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen a few of those. A little unfortunate. Uh, which, you know, the thing is, we all love the Twilight Zone, but it always seems to be quite a, a turbulent kind of show when it's on the air even the original show the head was pretty much always on the chopping block you know mm -hmm. it was always kind of this close to being cancelled yeah it wasn't I mean, a tremendously popular show i was just going to say it wasn't it was no i love lucy it did it wasn't in the top shows and mm -hmm. but it had a loyal following the people that followed it stayed with it yeah but yeah. it wasn't uh you know mikhail's navy or something like that yeah I mean, as someone who has worked in the business for some years, and I know you, you still work in the business. You, mm -hmm. you advise a lot on script writing and that kind of thing. Am I, is that right? Yeah, um, I've been consulting with Screen West uh, Australia and Screen Australia, and uh, individuals. I, I consulted not too long ago on a script with Will Smith. Mm -hmm. um, I do a lot of that, but I'm also still writing. I have a project that's got Richard Karn attached. Mm -hmm. Richard Karn was the tool guy in um, Tim Allen's comedy, whose name is Skipper right now. Mm -hmm. um, and Home I've got some, Home Improvement, thank you. Yeah. And I've got something else uh, that is out to Shania Twain, of all people, because I think it's something that Jeremy and I wrote originally for American Playhouse that we think Shania can play and would be helpful to the project yeah. about Native Americans. So, um, yeah, I'm still in the business, still active in the business. and But more so, I'm working with people uh, and consulting in the business, not just my students, but other people. So yeah. I have my hand all over the place. Absolutely. So, you know, you know the business kind of inside and out. Do you think that, you know, there's always talk of a new Twilight Zone. Do you think that that is a real possibility that it it could be revived and be both critically and commercially successful or do you think that we're we're just living in a different time now and it's not really something that a modern audience wants to see wow uh, it, it's hard to say the networks are so crazy right now and the cable networks are so nuts mm -hmm. and they don't really know what they're doing they're, they're trying to find their audience and they're trying to find it with the same old stuff. 
So if some guy wakes up over at CBS one day and says, you know what we really could do? We could do the Twilight Zone again. It could happen, but they are very, very cautious about uh, anthology shows yeah. because they want to create a continuing audience with a continuing story, and they want to hook you in somehow. They don't believe that the franchise of Twilight Zone is enough to hook people in. They think that people need a story and continuing characters to do that. Mm-hmm. That's what's up for debate. and. Yeah. I can debate that until I'm blue, but they can point at numbers and I can say, well, look, uh, it might not be two and a half men in terms of continuing story and and continuing audience. Mm -hmm. But if it's a cable outlet, let's say it's USA or let's say it's a cable outlet owned by CBS, which would be like MTV or um, uh, there's the, uh, not FX, but FX would be a perfect place for it. Um, there's another one that's owned that appeals directly to men. That could be a possibility. So you don't need this the huge audience. If you do it on a budget, you don't have to make these for a million dollars. Yeah. Uh, they made Aquavita for about a million dollars. That was a lot of money then mm-hmm. for a half hour. And it doesn't need to be done that way. That was CBS when they were making it. That was Phil DeGuerre's Spendthrift Days. We made our episodes for a good deal less than that. But they can still be made, given the changes in production and the way production is done with video and and HD stuff. We could still make these episodes for under a quarter million dollars, yeah. with a lot of care, and focus on the story more than on the production values and those kinds of things. Keep them small. They they had quite small stories. Uh, if you look at them, they didn't have these big science fiction things. They had small things. Mm-hmm. And that were easily done in a studio, and we could do the same. But uh, you know, I have to convince the people at the top, and they don't, they don't want to listen about that. And I don't have the rights to do that, so it's the rights are tied up with Carol Serling and, and that state, and I just don't have that. Paul, I I just got one final question. Sure. Um, and you know, I'd like to finish by asking you about something that you and Jeremy arranged. Uh, that I think all Twilight Zone fans owe you a debt of gratitude for. Hopefully you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, (laughs) thank you. We had realized uh, our office was on Hollywood Boulevard, and we realized that there were very, very few writers that didn't have a star in the Walk of Fame. Mm -hmm. Uh, That had a star, excuse me, that had a star. And we thought, that's kind of stupid, because the only people that have to work from the nothing are the writers and then everybody else works from that. And they're the creators of the whole thing. And then we realized too that there was no star for Rod Serling. Mm-hmm. And that was just a travesty as far as we were concerned. Here's a guy that won many Emmy awards. He won Emmys before uh, Twilight Zone. I believe he won Emmys after Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, very powerful writer in the business. Uh, very influential to writers since. And he didn't have his own star. And there were people that had stars that we didn't recognize. We didn't recognize their names. We didn't even recognize what they did. And as a matter of fact, we found out when we were researching that one of the persons that had a star on the Walk of Fame was just somebody's secretary. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we realized that it wasn't as hard to get a star on there as we thought. Uh, It required the company that wanted to put forward a particular person to put up a certain amount of money. 
I believe at the time it was $5,000, and uh, we created an event around that. So we arranged that to happen. And that was quite a quite an impressive day. Yeah, good, good. Okay, very deserving, absolutely. Mm. Okay, well, Paul, I, it's been... It's been a pleasure. I, I really thank you for giving us your insight on the on the eighties series, and uh, it's it's been a it's been a real honour for me. So thanks for talking to me today. Oh well, thank you, Tom. It was great to talk with you, and, and I loved your questions. I really got to the heart of the matter. So that always makes the interview a lot more interesting. So there you go. That was Paul Chitlick, and I really want to say thanks again to Paul. It was it was a real pleasure getting to speak to him. And like I say, if you want to check out those ebooks, then you can go to digitalfabulous.com and check them out. There's also a link to them at the Twilight Zone Network if you want to go and check that out too. So in the next podcast, we'll be back to our usual format and we'll be talking about the monsters that you on Maple Street. Once again, I'd like to give my apologies for the for the schedule of the podcast lately. It hasn't been what I would like it to be but unfortunately my workload at the moment just stops that from happening but rest assured it will get back to normal one day and um, in the meantime I will do my best to get episodes out when I can but but stick with me we've got a good show coming up next and uh, I think everyone's going to enjoy that so so once again thanks for listening and thank you to Paul and I'll see you next time <laughs>